It appears the Ontario government's environment policy has little to do with public consultation or transparency. That according to the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, in her latest report on the province's environment policy. Add to the mix, the Ontario Greenbelt Council saw seven members resign over the weekend, including former PCMP and Toronto Mayor David Crombie. And the final reading of Bill 229 is underway, which would greatly reduce the oversight of conservation authorities. The province has made it clear that this is the direction it's going. Now, when we posted our unpublished.vote question, we asked, do you feel the provincial government can ignore some environmental regulations to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic? 44.6% said yes, 52.3% said no, and 3.1% were unsure. Now, however you are watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. I'd like to remind you that you can cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, then email your MP and tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss this very important issue is Ian Arthur. He's opposition environment critic, MPP for Kingston and the Islands. Hopefully joining us shortly, Diane Sachs, Deputy Leader of the Green Party of Ontario. And Dr. Blair Feltmate is the head of the Intact Centre on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo. I did invite Ontario Environment Minister Jeff Urich to take part, but alas, once again, no reply. All right, we'll start off with you, Blair. Uh, from what we've seen between the uh, the reports from the Auditor General, from what we have seen from the Greenbelt Coalition resignations and Bill 229, how is this any different from 1995? Well, in terms of the formidability of the challenge that climate risk presents, and particularly flooding, I think we have a much better understanding today than of that whole topic than we did 25 years ago or so. And we, I think one of the things that we need to do, all parties involved in um, dispute over Bill Section 6 of Bill 229, I think one of the things we could do to have, it would be to have the conservation authorities, Greenbelt Council, ministries of environment, natural resources, housing and finance, all work together to better understand how flood risk mitigation driven through the retention and the restoration of natural infrastructure how it can provide benefit from a variety of perspectives. Um, and just very quickly to hit a few of these points that it, it's, and it's not that well understood in the province. We need to look at how retaining natural infrastructure can work to mitigate flood risk and in so doing and ensure, help to ensure an insurable housing market um, in the province. Increasingly so with flooding in Ontario, mm. people finding it very, very difficult to get um, house insurance uh, relative to, to basement flooding. Uh, uh, flood risk mitigation can work to lower uh, insurance premiums that people pay relative to basement flooding as driven by uh, lower basement flooding. Um, we can retain housing prices, higher housing prices if houses aren't impacted by flooding. Mortgage defaults will drop if we control flood risk uh, mitigation. Uh, we can adjust, uh, we can realize uh, lower municipal insurance rates by controlling for flood risk. Um, and people can realize less time off work. In other words, there's a whole area of focus in reference to the upside of retaining natural infrastructure that I believe today is not well understood in financial terms, and that would be probably pretty well received by the conservation authorities, the Greenbelt Council, and Ministry of Finance. I think we could all be on the same page there. And uh, 
the chair and six members of the Ontario Greenbelt Coalition resigned over the weekend, including David Crombie. What, what, what's this a sign of? I think it's a sign of the lack of consultation that this government actually did. And, and while I, I agree with Blair that in an ideal world, that would be tremendous. I would love to see those groups coming together, uh, working in that way, sharing knowledge and doing that. But, but this was a politically motivated decision. Uh, there, there's a small group of people who benefit from this decision. The Ford government has made it tremendously clear that that is, is who that they are listening to. Those are the people who have the ear of the premier. It's not about evidence-based policymaking at this point. This is about uh, fulfilling a political wish list of this particular government. And unfortunately, it's going to be the people of Ontario who pay because of it. Diane, thank you so much for, for joining us. Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark says he... he What's a plan, referring to the Greenbelt Council, to grow the quantity and the quality of the Greenbelt? Can that be done without harming one or the other? Uh, (laughs) Was that aimed at, I apologize. Uh, That's no problem. That's that's, that's fine. Go ahead, Diane. I agree with what Ian has just said, that what we see here is a concentrated organized attack on every law institution and policy that stands in the way of developers converting precious public space into big box stores and subdivisions. Uh, It's a concentrated attack on on all of those institutions. The attack on the conservation authorities is just one more piece that we've seen for the last two years. One of the very first things they did was cancel all the funding for the Clean Water Act right in the middle of uh, uh, of the first flooding season and they canceled money for flooding control by the conservation authorities. The conservation authorities have served Ontario incredibly well in the last half century and one of the most important things they've done is kept developers out of certain sensitive lands like the provincial significant wetland um, near Duffins Creek which presumably some rich donors want. And so what the province is is doing is trying to put a fig leaf of uh, greenwashing over an immensely destructive series of coordinated actions. Blair, the ministry is moving forward with changes to to conservation authorities as uh, they quote, to improve the governance oversight accountability while respecting taxpayer dollars by giving municipalities more say over the authority services that they pay for. when I, I see something like this, it, it looks like the only, the only decisions that they want are the ones that work in their direction, as opposed to, you know, this, this decision from the CA is based on science, but you're not going to be able to build there. So you know, I, I, what I'm trying to figure out is what, what, what's the oversight, the overreach that CAs are being accused of that we can't seem to get an answer about? Well, the, uh, I think one of the things that the CAs need to do is to uh, better articulate the business case for retaining natural infrastructure beyond saying that this helps to mitigate flood risk. And at the beginning, I mentioned a whole bunch of ideas, you know, a whole bunch of areas that we could, we could certainly do research into in, in the immediate term, I'm not talking years off, that could uh, effectively explain 
the upside of retaining natural infrastructure more so than the conservation authorities have done to date. And by the way, I'm not blaming them, blaming them. I'm just saying this is an area that we could really develop data around to fully articulate the benefits of retaining natural infrastructure, which will work to the benefit of municipalities. If municip municipalities need to understand better that by retaining natural infrastructure and not building in areas that are at high risk of flooding and so forth, that it can serve their constituents very, very well by helping to retain, for example, amongst other points, an insurable housing market, which I mentioned at the beginning. Increasingly so, uh, right across in Ontario and quite frankly, right across Canada, we are seeing uh, people in situations whereby they cannot get insurance coverage for their homes for basement flooding. They can still get theft and fire. And it's because the risk of basement flooding is getting so high that the premium that the insurers would have to charge would be off the charts. It, it, nobody could pay it. So that's one downside of not controlling for flood risk. The way you control for flood risk amongst various avenues of pursuit is to retain natural infrastructure. So I think if I were the conservation authorities, I would explain to municipalities in very stark terms how retaining natural infrastructure can work to the benefit of their constituents by helping to ensure an insurable housing market, realize lower insurance premiums, help retain housing prices, et cetera. And I, I don't think, and, and there's a variety of other reasons that I mentioned at the beginning, I don't think this whole topic, this whole framework is very well understood. And uh, that's an area that I, I'm hoping that everybody from the conservation authorities, Greenbelt Council, Minister of Finance, you know, Rod Phillips, that they could all agree upon. This is something worth better understanding and, uh, and works to everybody's mutual benefit. Now, Diane, you want to jump in? Absolutely. I mean, with all due respect to Blair, I, I disagree. I've been watching closely what the conservation authorities have done and said for the, for the last 45 years. And I think they have generally done an excellent job within the limits of the very small resources that have been provided to them. The people that I've talked to at all the conservation authorities are passionate. They have been clearly conveying those messages and they have been deliberately ignored because the, there is money to be made by ignoring them. There is more money to be made by ignoring them. So I don't think that it's fair to blame the conservation authorities for failing to communicate. They have communicated this. They've documented over and over and over again. Um, just that as the government has been cutting their funding steadily and um, really hamstrung them. And I reported to the Ontario legislature on this in my last environment report in 2018. The many ways that the provincial government hamstrung the ability of the conservation authorities to protect, for example, wetlands, which are critical, not just for flooding, um, but also for, um, for biodiversity and natural systems on which our lives depend, clean water, many other things. And the, the provincial government methodically made life difficult to, for them, um, wouldn't stand behind them when they tried to defend their jurisdiction, starved them with money to bring legal cases to enforce the rules, didn't have clear definitions. So the conservation authorities are real heroes. I don't, I mean, I will agree with Blair to this extent. I don't think very many people recognize what extraordinary public servants we have had 
in the conservation authorities, uh, at least for the 45 years that I've been watching, and how how skilled, how caring, how um, uh, how much science they do understand, and how much they have been ignored because money talks louder than facts. Ian, you wanted to jump in. I, I, I'm going to echo a few of the things and, and expand on what Diane is saying as well. Blair, in an ideal world, yes, uh, you know we would have all these folks talking to each other. I, I think that it's telling that that one of the groups that came out against. Uh, Schedule 6 was AMO, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. I don't think it's about municipalities not, not necessarily appreciating, you know, some municipalities may have a better relationship with their conservation authorities than others, uh, and they may do that. But I, I think that's more on a, a case-by-case -case thing. Underlying this is money. And, uh, you know, this there, there is a pattern of behavior on the part of this government to Doug Ford promised to open the green belt during the election. Uh, that video became public. He had to walk back from it. He tried to do it in Schedule 10 of Bill 66. Uh, they've discovered the, the, their, their new magic wand, which is a ministerial zoning order, which allows them to override any planning decisions. And, and really, one of the, the worst parts of the amendments to, to Bill 229 that was brought forward, or Schedule 6 of Bill 229, was that they're actually empowering the minister even more with these ministerial zoning orders. And, and that is the ultimate, you know, uh, blunt force object to, to put these things through. And, and it, it won't matter whether you have municipalities at the table and conservation authorities at, at the table, or frankly, even the Minister of the Environment. Uh, this, is, this is concentrating the, the power in, in the office of the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. So it's not about even working between ministries and the government. It's about giving one ministry with a with a very specific mandate. That is the ministry that works with these developers. They have an agenda. They've been trying to accomplish that agenda since the moment they were elected. Doug Ford, frankly, is beholden to these uh, developers. They are the folks who who funded Ontario Proud, who played a huge role in helping him get elected. And you know the it's the the it's it, it's come full circle. He's in the process of of paying them back for their their support during the election. All right, now I've got a question coming in from uh, Facebook Live for Diane and Ian. What can Ontario residents do to help stop this from happening? And it might be a little late right now, Diane. Well, it's awfully late, but for sure, uh, especially if you have a conservative MPP, that MPP needs to hear from you that what they're doing is immoral that it will do immense harm to Ontario society long after Mr. Ford and his friends have taken their profits and retired, that, um, that people are noticing the evisceration of environmental institutions and protections and care about it. People in rural areas as well need to speak up about this. Uh, the provincial government, this government has shown they don't care very much about the opinions of people who haven't voted for them. So it's the people in the ridings that do have conservative MPPs who need to be speaking up and they need to speak up tonight. All right. Now, uh, Blair, I, I have a question for you. Is the insurance industry obligated to ensure anybody would have a home built within the floodplain? Or No. Okay. No. So they, they're not obligated at all. All right. No. So if if the an MZO comes along and and passes whatever somebody can build in that floodplain, and then all of a sudden one they can't get insurance, is everybody else on the hook for cleaning it up, for pulling them out, 
because they've built in the floodplain in the first place? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> and it's one in which the governments are reliably dishonest with people. And in what sense? Well, the, the, we haven't had an honest about who is going to pick up the, the cost for all the damages that are coming from climate, mm-hmm. the climate crisis, exacerbated by these very bad development decisions. So we see this over and over again, people who have a property, for example, along Lake Erie that is being destroyed by the greater erosion now, mm-hmm. um, and who are expecting that the public purse will continue to pick up whatever it takes um, to protect them or buy them out at public expense. So these are people with more money expe- expecting people with less money to put up money to buy them out. Um, we have, it's one of the things, again, that I reported to the legislature is that it's time for an honest conversation. What will the public purse pay for? And what are private losses? Um, and up until now, it's always been, or often been convenient for government just to duck and make the taxpayer pay rather than have a hard conversation with whoever's aggrieved at the moment. And that's not going to be sustainable as the losses rise and rise Mm. and rise every decade, as we know climate change is going to make it do. And I guess the liability would lie lie with uh, the minister who granted the MZO in the first place. Yeah, but they're going to have been retired, right? So these people are going to take their money, they're going to retire, they're going to get cushy jobs somewhere, And they're not going to be the ones bailing out the families who lose their homes. So we have, oh, sorry. Go ahead. We have really short memories. The the reason that conservation authorities were brought in in the first place was to to deal with these sort of issues because they had come up before. We had bad housing developments built in areas they should never have been built in. So we, we started talking about watershed management and we empowered an organization filled with experts to provide us advice on that uh, but we have short memories you know now now we think of conservation authorities as conservation areas i think most members of the public and blair i think you're bang on when when you say that most folks don't actually understand the real role of conservation authorities they just see the outward facing one the, the maple syrup days and the feeding chickadees mm-hmm. well the other thing they see too is when they don't get the answer they want then it's obviously a negative thing right that's that's the that's what I've seen. Go ahead, Blair. I was just going to say, but back to your question though about insurance. So there, there's a variety of ways insurance companies, you know, insurance mm-hmm. has responded to increasing flood risk. So in Ontario, over the course of about the last five or six years, home insurance premiums have increased by about twenty to twenty five percent, and sixty percent of that increase in premiums is due to flooding, uh, basement flooding in particular. Uh, the cap rate, the, the cap levels that insurers will uh, support uh, tend to be going downwards into the zone of about ten dollars to $20,000 coverage for basement flooding in higher risk areas. Um, and that's very problematic when you consider that the, the average flooded basement for a home in Ontario is about forty dollars to $43,000. It's somewhere in that zone. So if you get flooded out, if your basement gets flooded and you have $20,000 of coverage, you could easily be on the hook for another twenty dollars or $30,000 to, to uh, pay out. The, uh, but one of the great problems and challenges right now is just simply homes that increasingly so are at such high risk of flooding, uh, they actually can't get insurance coverage, period, at any premium. And by the way, this isn't just for homes in floodplains. Uh, uh, we're realizing through uh, microburst storms that are hitting more frequently, yep. more frequently now, driven by climate change, 
that flooding can pretty much hit anywhere. And um, uh, so homeowners increasingly so, you know, there are efforts in, in place being pushed by particularly insurers. Homeowners are being encouraged to put measures in around the outside of the property and in the basement itself to lower the probability that they otherwise end up with a flooded basement. Uh, Ian, I'm wondering with the with the changes that we've seen over this last little while, where was the public consultation? <laughs> it was non-existent. I mean, there there was some, uh, I would say, tokenistic consultations that were done. But I'll come back to the previous point I made that this was done with an agenda in mind. There was a desired outcome that this government wanted, and anything they've done along the way it has been the the barest minimum of outreach of of notification. I, I mean this. This took everyone by surprise. This is supposed to be a COVID recovery budget. And the most contentious piece in this is not about COVID. It's not about economic recovery. It's, it's about uh, conservation authorities and, and flood management. Uh, and I, I sit on the Standing Committee for Finance and Economic Affairs. So, so we do budget hearings. I'm one of the, the members of the legislature who sit through the budget hearings. I would say well over 50% of the people who testified on this bill were there in opposition to this specific schedule. So when the public was given an opportunity to actually provide feedback, universally it was, please withdraw this. And that came from every corner of the province. The, the, you know, the Ontario Federation of Agriculture had heavy criticisms of it and, and mm-hmm. indicated that they very much wanted to, if there was any conflict with conservation authorities, that they wanted to be able to to work together with them and figuring it out. As I said, the Association of Ontario Municipalities, uh, we heard from a Cotters Association, we heard from almost every major environmental organization in Ontario, Environmental Defense, uh, David Suzuki, uh, Canadian Environmental Law Association, Ontario Nature, uh, universal opposition from every possible corner that could be, and they're barreling ahead with it. I just got an email right now that the vote on this is going to be tomorrow. All right, so there we go. We're going to find out find out for tomorrow. Although with the majority, uh, there's not much change that's going and it's carried in a budget bill. I mean, they're not going to yeah. defeat their own budget bill. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, uh, Diane, the Environmental Bill of Rights does it have any teeth? <laughs> well, the the Environmental Bill of Rights functioned primarily because. It, it commanded public respect. And so the government felt, um, my experience until the Ford government was elected was that the bill did achieve respect and that although compliance was certainly not automatic, um, that when non-compliance was brought to the attention of senior members of government, they worked slowly, but they did work to correct it. Whereas the Ford government has been um, very clear from the beginning that they don't think public consultation is a particularly valuable process. They don't want to hear from the public. They know what they want to do. They don't, um, they don't get swayed by what the public has to say, except on the rarest of occasions. So, for example, when they were forced by a court proceeding to do public consultation on their destruction of our climate law and climate targets and climate programs, uh, 11,000 people commented in four weeks with no government publicity whatsoever. 99% were against what they were doing. They didn't pay any attention. So the bill doesn't have teeth if the government won't comply and this government won't comply. And then they've 
taken every other opportunity. They, as uh, you know, they used COVID as a pretext for um, lifting what little public consultation there is and put all sorts of other things through it. They, um, they do not respect any of the norms that were hard won over a generation or two for environmental protection. And they don't respect the voice of the public. Their view seems to be, we won the election. We get to take whatever we want from whatever we want at whatever cost we want, because we won and we, we have the power and we are able to use it for the benefit of our donors. And we're going to. Go ahead, Ian. You want to say something? Just to, to, to carry on from Diane's point there, it is reprehensible that this is in a COVID recovery bill. Uh, take away any of the, the need for public consultation, the lack of popularity, the universal opposition to this particular schedule, because it's made the conversation about this. And, and it has to be about this because it's really, really important. But this budget should people are losing their businesses, they're losing their homes, they're losing their loved ones. A COVID recovery bill should have been about COVID. We shouldn't be talking about conservation authorities. In and, and frankly, it, it's an it's it is it's it's reprehensible that they have made this the focus of attention when so many people are going through so much hardship. We we really need you know we as an MPP. All day, every day is working with community members to get through COVID. That is what people are doing right now. That is, is where their priorities are. And for the Ford government to use a global pandemic as cover for an attack on the environment, I, like I have to say, it's disgusting. And I'm, I'm not saying that to be dramatic or, or to, to overstate it. It's not for to score political points. It really is. It should not be a topic of discussion right now. It is anti-democratic, right? But it's the same pattern we've seen before. I mean, they used a financial bill as cover for the special legislation to break my contract and abolish my office. Again, nothing to do with the budget. It's simply greenwashing just to pretend. Okay, now, Blair, uh, what's the one thing the Ontario government and conservation authorities can can take cooperatively, cooperatively to help minimize, you know, the flooding issues that we have in Ontario? There's there's kind of two routes to go here. By the way, just to be clear, uh, I am a fan of the conservation authorities. I know the conservation authorities very very well. I, I, I deal with them all the time. They're 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 friends of mine. But I do think one of the things the conservation authorities need to do is to develop additional expertise to explain the financial benefits associated with uh, um, retaining natural infrastructure. Have they done so to some extent? Yes, but to the extent they need to do it. No. And uh, this is an area I think they could they could do considerable work in. Um, relative to flood risk mitigation in Ontario, uh, where the Ontario government could be of great uh, value in working with conservation authorities, by the way, is to launch a provincial home flood protection education program, number one at top of list, to give people information pertaining to what they can do at the level of their property, outside the property, in the basement itself, uh, to lower the chances that they'll end up with a, with a flooded basement. And it is amazing how much risk the average person could take out of the chances of their basement flooding by exercising about two days worth of work around the house that doesn't require a great deal of money or special expertise. 
this should be, in my opinion, at the very, very top of the list of that which we can do to, to lower the costs associated with flooding in the province. And I can pretty much guarantee that an effort to along the lines of that which I've just described will be something that the Ontario uh, government rolls out. It's something that Rod Phillips, you, you know, is very much a fan of amongst others. So I, I think this will happen. Um, and, and I think it will happen sooner than later. Uh, Ian, I, I, conservation authority is part of this uh, legislation as well, and no more civilian appointments. Um, do you have a concern about that, or should it always be elected officials that are sitting on those boards? <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I've, I've never claimed to be a scientist. I, I, as a politician, your job is to, to frankly listen to the experts in any given field. And the, I think uh, it, it was said earlier that, that conservation authorities have been doing a phenomenal job. And I, I don't know uh, if their job is to actually relay that to the public, because frankly, you should have governments that understand what they do as experts in their field. I'm not sure that we want conservation authorities to be communication agencies at all. I I want them to do watershed planning and I want governments to listen to the experts. That's where they're, you know, taking scarce resources. Sure, if you're going to throw a whole bunch more money at conservation authorities and say, each of you now has to come up with a communications department, uh, communication strategy and and do that sort of front-facing outreach, but they, they simply don't have the resources to do that as it stands. And so the resources need to be uh, used to put people who are experts in these areas in positions where they can provide sound advice and expertise to governments and governments need to respect that. That is the role that they were designed for and, and that's the role they should keep getting to do. And, and so just elected officials on you know, that doesn't even make sense. It totally undermines what the intent of what the conservation authorities were supposed to be in the first place. Yeah, exactly. If that's the case, you might as well just get rid of them if it's just going to be a, you know, a free for all. But uh, that's uh, all the time we have. That was a great discussion, folks. I want to thank our guests for this evening, Ian Arthur, MPP for Kingston and the Islands. Diane Sachs, Deputy Leader of the Green Party of Ontario, former Environment Commissioner of Ontario. Dr. Blair Feldmate, Head of the Intact Centre on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo. Coming up next Monday evening, we'll take a look at the federal financial update. Hope you can join us. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.